Welcome to another conversation on Orthodoxy. Christ is risen. Truly, he is risen. I'm recording this a few weeks after Pascha. It is almost mid-Pentecost, and it's been quite a while since I put out an episode. I realized as I started getting into Lent that time was really not going to be um, available to do any podcast episodes. It was just going to be way too much work in a very difficult time of the year. And um, so I contacted the various people that I had scheduled to do interviews and said, hey, let's wait till after Pascha. Uh, let's get the decks cleared a little bit. And I'm sure that was, uh, that was um, very good for everyone. Most people uh, said that was definitely uh, going to work better for their schedules. And so I'm sure, just like me, they also were feeling a little bit of the lint crush. Um, but anyway, it's good to be back and um, be moving again into some additional conversations. Hopefully you guys have stuck with me throughout this uh, little dry spell and we can get right back to it. And I'm really excited about this next conversation. Uh, I recorded this quite a while ago um, and so it's good to, to finally get it out. The interview is with uh, iconographer Aiden Hart, uh, a British iconographer who is um, very well known for his various works and also for uh, his book that he wrote on the subject of iconography. And we'll discuss that a little bit later. Um, along the way, we'll talk about um, some of his uh, journey into orthodoxy very briefly and uh, some time he spent um, where he was considering the monastic path. And he spent some time on Mount, Mount Athos. And uh, we'll even talk a little bit about Father Paisios and, um, and some other fun things um, where he, he um, got to spend some time on Mount Athos and uh, about his experiences there and uh, about the, uh, the state of iconography um, in the West and how uh, he's working to try to develop and pass that on to the next generation of iconographers here in the West. Um, it's a very interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Um, and just uh, just as a reminder and a teaser, there there are some really good episodes going, that are going to be coming out uh, pretty soon. We we have um, a conversation with uh, with Michael Coleman, who is uh, another convert to the faith, along with a, a very large number of uh, a previous church of his um, that he was a part of, rather. And um, that'll be a very interesting story. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I did uh, thoroughly. Um, and um, I've also got a conversation with John and Bobby Maddox from Ancient Faith Radio. Uh, where we discuss some of the operations and the way things work there. And, and uh, I, I think it's uh, very interesting to hear behind the scenes how they put together the things that they do. And they do such a great job at Ancient Faith. It's been, uh, it's been so helpful to me and to so many others. And, um, and I think you'll be interested to hear what they say about Ancient Faith Radio, and, uh, and hopefully you'll continue to support what they do. And, uh, and there are various other, um, various other conversations that will be coming up that I think you'll find very interesting. Um, so stick with me, and hopefully you'll enjoy the ride. But uh, now let's, uh, let's hear from Aiden Hart. Hello, Mark. Finally got through. It's so good to be talking to you. Can you uh, quickly tell the listeners of the podcast um, a little bit about yourself and your work as an iconographer? Yes, um, I'm Aidan Hart. I've been a professional icon painter and carver since I became Orthodox, really, in 1983. Um, I was uh, 
raised in New Zealand, then born in England. Um, when I became Orthodox in New Zealand, I fairly soon afterwards came to England, back to England, um, having spent a few months in, in monasteries in America. Um, and uh, yes, I started carving icons in relief and then got into painting them. Um, and also uh, learned how to fresco and more recently do mosaic. So basically all, all the liturgical arts. In, in addition to being an iconographer, um, you also teach, isn't that correct? Well, I, 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 do, I do teach this sometimes, yes. There's an Orthodox Institute in Cambridge. 90% of my income is from fulfilling commissions, but um, I founded um, a diploma in icon and wall painting um, at the Prince of Wales School of Traditional Arts. Um, I used to teach some of their master's students as well. But since I founded the diploma four years ago, I just concentrate on that. But at, yes, at, at the Orthodox Institute in Cambridge, um, every year I give about two lectures. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later uh, for those who are interested in uh, various avenues of, of learning about iconography. Um, but for now, can we, can we drop back? Because you, you weren't uh, a so-called so cradle Orthodox. You became uh, an Orthodox believer um, in your, your adult years. Um, so can you, can you back up and tell us a bit about uh, the path that you took to get to Orthodoxy? Yes, um, I became a, a Christian when I was 15, initially um, uh, a Baptist, and then fairly soon went to a High Anglican church. It was just an interesting church. It was a mixture of High Anglican, meaning it believed in, in ritual and incense and things, but it had strong charismatic and evangelical elements as well. In fact, those were quite good preparing me for orthodoxy, because orthodoxy has all those elements in. Um, so it, it was a search for uh, influences that would help me in my sculpture, because I was a professional sculptor at the time, to how to depict the, the inner essence of people, the spiritual as well as the material that led me to icons, and also a, uh, help, uh, to help me pray more deeply. That was the other search that led me to orthodoxy. Um, and then I met two, two monks in New Zealand, one of whom was an icon painter. So when I saw the icon, I pretty quickly realized that this is what I've been looking for in my own art. And then discussing things like the philokilia with them, I came to see that orthodoxy had what I've come to see as the ordinance survey map of the soul, a really detailed map of the soul. And then through reading a bit of church history, I came to see that behind all these things, the beauty of the icon and the aesthetic life was the fact that it was the early church that had continued um, unchanged in the sense that it seemed to have retained you know, the original richness of the faith. So that was in 1983 I became Orthodox. And I see there's a continuity. I, I, I didn't sort of react against that Anglican background, but I see my step from Baptist to Anglican to Orthodoxy as just an accumulation of, of truths, as it were. I understand that you um, actually uh, began to look at becoming a monastic um, and spent quite a bit of time um, in various monastic communities. Can you uh, can you discuss uh, why you started going that direction and then maybe why you didn't end up becoming a monastic? Um, I was interested in exploring the monastic life and they recommended that I um, travel overseas first to experience the wider Orthodox Church and other monasteries. So I, I went to um, Russian churches in America, Russian 
monasteries. I came to England and went to all sorts. So as it turned out, I settled in Bath in, in England, and that was uh, under the ecumenical patriarch, um, but it was a convert parish. But the priest there had trained me much in the Russian tradition, so <laughs> I've been exposed to a whole range, really, of uh, the orthodox uh, flavours, if you like. Now, I, I was actually um, a novice monk for quite a long time, well, a, a rasaful monk for quite a while, while I was sort of exploring the monastic life, for about 12 years, in fact, the last six years as a sort of semi-hermit. But um, in the end, with the blessing of my bishop, I, I felt that my main calling was monastic, or sorry, was iconography. And I, for me personally, I just had to concentrate on, on, on that. That was about 12 years ago, I suppose. In, in, as I understand, it's, it's, it's while you were pursuing the monastic life in, in various places that you began to take up the liturgical arts uh, and began to uh, learn to become an iconof iconographer. And certainly we'll circle back to that. Um, but before we leave this monastic, uh, you know, uh, topic, I'd like to, to talk a little bit more about Mount Athos. Now, you spent a little bit of time um, uh, there uh, while you were studying, correct? Yes. Um, yes. I, I, um, when I was studying in um, Thessaloniki, I went to Athos as often as I could and came to know um, an Australian monk, Father Jeremiah, at Stavonikita Monastery. Um, Father Vasilius, um, who wrote the Hymn of Entry, a book you may know, was the abbot at that time at Stavonikita. And then when I was um, recommended by Archbishop Gregorius, um, our big bishop in Britain, to go to Mount Athos to get experience before I lived as a hermit, I naturally wanted to go to be with Father Vasilius, who at that time had taken over a Viron monastery. So I was about a year and a half at a Viron. And it was a great honor, really, to be with Father Vasilius. Um, he himself, in fact, studied theology in France and knew Leonard Dispensky and studied under him a bit. So, and also he loved architecture. So he had this wonderful combination of, of obviously, a very deep um, spiritual life gained in Athos, but also a very strong artistic bent. So um, after various obediences in the kitchen and then working the sawmill, um, the last year or so, I was like the monastery artist and um, was honored to be asked to make the, and carve the throne, the, uh, the large casing for the original Port Aitisur icon. So that was a wonderful thing. And then designed um, and made some silver work for the monastery and various other things. Um, so it was a wonderful sort of union of, um, of its liturgical life and, and quite, quite demanding artistic work. Um, it, it is hard, I must say, though, for, for non-cradle Orthodox, um, though it is an international place. Yeah, it, is, it is basically a Greek culture, or if you're in a Russian monastery, a, a, a Russian culture. So I think the fallout among, uh, as it were, um, converts in Mount Athos is quite high because there are a lot of things you've got to adjust to. Um, I knew I wasn't going to be there permanently. I, I knew I was there just to get some training before going back to my hermitage. Um, but um, yes, I think uh, ind individual meetings were just absolutely wonderful. I met Father Paisius a number of times. And, and what struck me, say, comparing him with Father Vasilius, is how holiness purifies the ego, but it doesn't make everyone the same. I had this sort of image of one saint as an emerald and another saint as a ruby. Um, so holiness, I realized, brings out the unique personality, if you like, of each individual, 
changed of ego. So Father Vesalius was, as you might say, a more cultivated, cultured man. And Father Paisius was more of a peasant background. But both, both were holy, but in their own unique way. And that, that taught me that um, walking with God needs courage in a way to find one's own unique name, um, one's own unique gifts. And, and that's the thing we've got to serve others with. Um, and, and that's, in a sense, also how we know God, by finding our true selves. It sounds rather modern psychology, but um, I think it's probably what's meant in, I think, the book of Revelation, where Christ says, he who conquers, um, I'll give him a name. And that name, to my mind, is, 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 is finding your, your unique cross, one's unique road with the Lord. And I think that's what, what I learned most of all, really, at Mount Athos, through meeting a whole range of really holy people, and each one was just so different. Many of our listeners may be familiar with uh, uh, some of the monks on Mount Athos who have, have uh, reached a certain uh, level of, uh, say, public awareness, um, one of which it would be Father Paisios. Um, can you tell us um, about any um, time that you spent with Father Paisios? Yes. Um, one that comes to mind is I took a friend of mine who's uh, an art teacher to see Father Paisios. And... Um, and this man, who's, who's a married man with children and a teacher, he said to Father Paisius, I mean, I love to death, as he said, but you know, I, I go home to my family and my teaching. You know, how, how can I live a rich spiritual life in the world? And Father Paisius asked him, well, what, what do you do? And he said, I'm an artist. And he said, well, you know, life with God is beautiful and, and we're supposed to become beautiful people. And he said, the word philokilia means the love of the beautiful. So you must learn to serve God in the context of becoming beautiful yourself and making beautiful things. Um, that, 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 that's, that struck me as something wonderful. Uh, and also Father Vesalius um, emphasized a lot the freedom in Christ. Obviously, Christ gives us commandments and we live according to his will. So in that sense, we are slaves of God. Um, but on the other hand, Father Vesalius said, these commands are there to set us free. And he said once, I'm orthodox because orthodoxy takes me beyond orthodoxy. In other words, orthodoxy isn't a system, he said. Orthodoxy is a, a living relationship with the living God. And we should never try to contain God with, within systems. He, he, he mentioned once he went to a theological conference and there was a talk given by a theologian there. And all technically correct, theologically correct, he said, but at the end of the talk, when people were able to give the responses. He said to the speaker rather boldly, he said, what you said was perfectly orthodox, therefore it wasn't orthodox. He said to me it was like having someone with lovely nuts, cashew nuts, but instead of giving them to you in a way that you could eat them and be nourished, he was throwing them at you. In other words, truth, truth needs to be imbibed and lived. So when we give it to others, it gives them life rather than be a thing that crushes them. So I think this, 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 this taught me that um, ultimately life in Christ um, is a life of freedom, not freedom to do wrong. But it, it, it makes us people rather than followers of a system. Thanks for sharing those stories with us. I really appreciate your insights and, and knowing more about your experience on Mount Athos and uh, 
uh, I'm sure many other people who have been able to experience Mount Athos will um, fondly remember and, and, and share some of those experiences I myself haven't had uh, that opportunity, but uh, perhaps someday. But um, now let's shift gears back to the main topic of, of the conversation that I wanted to have with you, and then that's about iconography. Um, so um, tell us a bit about um, how you got started uh, as an iconographer. I, I started, as I said, carving relief icons when I was in Bath and Britain. That's when I started in earnest. And fairly quickly, it was evident that there was uh, and a great demand for painted icons and carved ones, so I learned to paint icons. I suppose my initial teacher was actually Leonard Dispensky, vicariously through, who is now pa Father Patrick Doolan, um, an American like a very good iconographer. Um, I had a, a, some notes that Father Patrick had taken when he was training under Leonard Dispensky, so that was my sort of beginning, I suppose. Um, and my eyes have taught me most things, just studying masterpieces really, really closely to see why are they so good. Um, obviously, as much as possible studying originals, but where this wasn't possible, studying especially close-up photographs of good originals. I've got quite a scientific mind, so also I studied things like uh, scientific papers by conservatives who had studied using modern technology, uh, old icons. Um, and then um, I uh, travelled to Russia three times um, and studied the works there very closely. The first trip was a 20-day trip around the Golden Ring. Um, then talked to any good iconographers and picked their brains. Um, so I suppose I've been uh, for, it would have been about seven years practising iconography before I went to Athos. Um, but before I went to Athos, I studied modern Greek at Thessaloniki University and I uh, travelled a lot in Greece then. Um, there's some wonderful old churches in Thessaloniki and spoke to iconographers there. Uh, but I must say, my main teacher has been my, my, my eyes and an analytical mind, really. It hasn't been enough for me just to say, oh, that's profoundly beautiful or profoundly spiritual. I've always asked, well, how have they got that effect? So with your experience, w would you say that you were self-taught as an iconographer? Not, not really. I would say I've, I've, I've learned from everyone and everything and, and from masterpieces. And so I, 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 more accurately, it would be better to say that I've organized my own teaching <laughs> rather than self-taught, if you know what I mean. Um, I would have loved to have learned under a master, like Father Zinon, for example. Um, Father Zinon in Russia is my, my hero, as it were, so I, I learn a lot from his icons. Um, he's continually sort of reinventing himself or being influenced by new things. Um, so I'd say he would be my teacher, though we've only corresponded once. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm self-taught in the sense that I haven't had one particular teacher. But uh, I like to think of it more as me having organized my teaching. Would you say that your experience becoming an iconographer is typical, or would you say there's uh, another path that most iconographers will go down? It's probably atypical. I think it's... In Orthodox countries, like Greece and Russia, the most common thing would be to study under someone do like an apprenticeship, uh, because there's so many iconographers who are experienced around. But in the West, there aren't so many iconographers. So quite often, um, people have to satisfy themselves with going to five-day courses or uh, getting a bit here and a bit there, which, which is okay. But the trouble is, if someone goes to lots of different courses, people I found can get a bit, bit muddled 
Um, and I think there is um, ideally a progression. For example, I found that often drawing is quite weak with Western iconographers. So, for example, with my diploma, which is a four-year course, albeit part-time, the first year we don't paint with any color. It's all monochrome because I found that um, without a systematic teaching, as one might get with either going to a school of iconography or doing a proper apprenticeship, um, without that proper training in drawing, the color is, as it were, draped on an incorrect skeleton. <laughs> uh, so so um, there are disadvantages with, with a non-systematic form of teaching. And this is the reason why I founded this diploma. As far as I know, it's the only fairly long-term methodical course in the West. Um, there are schools like the Prosopon School, but as far as I know, there's no sort of progressive series of lessons over a long period, because um, I've noticed that there are a lot of potentially good iconographers in the West, but as it were, um, they haven't been, uh, uh, had enough feedback, creative feedback, to really improve as well as they could. Um, so I'm, I'm really keen that we get more serious schools of iconography in the West, just so that those who are uh, gifted can really come to the full potential. Now, the degree program that you've created, this is not an online program. Uh, you, you think that um, you're really the, the, the proper way to educate the next generation of, of iconographer is in person, right? Yes, that's right, yes. Like a diploma I, I run is... Um, in the middle of Britain, um, and that was deliberate because I knew that people were going to be coming from as far north as Scotland and from the South Coast. So these people have got to travel once a month, probably about five hours, uh, probably not a big distance in America, but for British people, it's a long way to travel. And in my new lot of entrants, um, I've just about finished with this lot of 12 people. We start another course in October. Um, I've had an applicant from Sweden and another from uh, Germany. So they'll be flying in seven times a year. <laughs> so it just shows that there's a desire for this more systematic teaching. Um, and people have unfortunately got to go quite a distance to get there. And do you teach all the classes yourself or do you have outside help? Yes, it's primarily myself. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm the teacher really, though I do finances uh, permitting, bring in um, some people sometimes. Um, yes, the, the first um, program, it was four years, as you say, once a month, well, 11 months of the year, um, just two whole days a month. But that was financially quite demanding. So what I've done with the new lot is leave off the last year, which was um, to do with fresco and seco painting, and make it a three-year course. And also, instead of having 11 two days a year, we have seven three days a year. So the same number of days a year, but, but um, reducing the number of times they've got to travel. So it just makes it more manageable, really, for them. Do you consider this sort of degree program as a, the, the proper way to learn iconography? Um, or would there be some better option even than what you've got going? Um, probably the, the ideal is to just, just to work under a master and be employed by him really. I've just myself recently taken on an apprentice two months ago um, and he learns not just the technical side of things but he, he learns the, uh, the mind attitude, he learns the business side, he learns just by observing me work on a day-to-day -day basis how to relate to clients and 
how to think theologically about each situation. Um, you know, for example, if I'm asked to fisk at a church, just, just by hearing conversations with the clients or whatever, he gets to see how each church, each parish is unique. And there's no sort of uh, standard form you've got to force onto a particular commission. So all those things you can really only properly learn you know, working full time um, with a more experienced iconographer. So a school, um, though it has its advantages, you know, lacks that, that sort of living and breathing. And so I, I would say ideally just be being employed by an iconographer over a long period of time, secondly a full-time school, thirdly a part-time school, and then the, the last option is just go to as many five-day courses um, and, and learning how to analyse icons and analyse one's own work. Uh, I, I think what's what, it's been a bit of a problem in the West that iconography is so revered an icon can be really badly painted, but because it's an icon, people seem to suspend their aesthetic judgment, and this is a mistake. Um, I think the two aspects to iconography or to an icon, one is the fact that it is uh, an image of the prototype. So even if it's a badly painted icon, it's still an icon. Um, so that, that that's independent of the ability of the iconographer. If it's a badly painted icon of Saint Seraphim, when I kiss the icon, I'm not really kissing the image, I'm kissing the Saint Seraphim. But the second role of an icon is to help, I would say, open the eyes of the heart, initiate us into a spiritual way of seeing, and that happens through the way it's painted or carved or mosaic or whatever the medium is. And this requires, obviously, uh, the iconographer to be immersed in the life of the church, but also requires skill. So it's the second thing that concerns me, really, that we don't have enough skilled iconographers. I think the, the level of iconography is still too low in the West. So I think we need to set the mark higher. And there are brilliant iconographers like Father Patrick Jewell in, in America and, and others, and uh, um, uh, Vladima, uh, a, a, a war painter. So there are, there are some really wonderful iconographers around, but we just need to have more of them. One thing I've learned, for example, by studying the whole range of iconography, not just within a given culture, but across different Orthodox cultures, is to distinguish between tradition capital T and tradition small t. So, for example, within Russia, just by looking at the icon without a regard to any writing about that icon or any historical fact, a fairly re reasonably uh, trained eye could tell you what, certainly what century it was painted, perhaps what quarter of that century and which, which city or which region it was painted in. Um, this is a great thing about iconography as an unchanging tradition, but in fact the way that that unchanging tradition capital T is expressed varies tremendously. Um, and of course you get traditions like the Georgian tradition, the Byzantine, the Russian, the Anglo-Saxon and the Romanesque. These are genuine um, iconographic traditions. So I think uh, just by looking at the whole range of iconography, it has taught me that um, iconography, when it's healthy, uh, 
it's a bit like Pentecost, the same truth preached in different tongues, different languages. And I think one of my sort of visions is to do what I can to nurture um, an authentic Western iconography that isn't naturalistic, that isn't sentimental, um, but, but is a genuine expression of, of the Orthodox vision in the West. So I, I'm very interested in architecture and I've been asked to design a church for our, our parish church. We may have to um, build a purpose-built church. So I've studied um, for that Romanesque examples, uh, Anglo-Saxon examples, because this is um, you know, early uh, Western iconography before the West became more as we know it now, a sort of mixture of <laughs> Roman Catholic and Protestant and whatever else there is. I'm curious what Anglo-Saxon iconography would be like. Is there any way for you to try to describe that to us? Um, it's a bit difficult with that, uh, visuals, but um, to my mind, one of the high, one of the, the high examples of uh, British iconography it's a work called the Bury St. Edmund Bible. It's a Romanesque work done in the um, 1100s. Um, how would one describe it? Um, it's a general rule in Russian and Byzantine iconography. Uh, drapery, a curve in drapery, tends to be broken up into straighter lines, um, whereas in Romanesque work, you get what's called the wet fold technique. So you would abstract, as it were, transfigure the drapery not by breaking a curve into a series of straight lines, but accentuating the curve. So you get these wonderful sort of swirls. Um, it's, it's certainly not Baroque, um, but, but, but it's got this emphasis on, on these swirls. So it shows the transfigured world um, in the way that uh, the average Byzantine Russian icon will, but in a different way. Um, also, there's very strong uh, tradition of relief carving. It's a wonderful work, in fact, now in America, in the Metropolitan, the, um, what's it called now, the, um, the Cloister Museum in New York. Uh, it used to be called the Bury St. Edmund Cross. I think it's called the Cloister Cross now. Absolute masterpiece of, of ivory carving, carved in walnut ivory. And the theology in that cross is astounding, the, the complexity and the, and the detail of the carving. But you feel that this is a transfigured world that's being carved here. So, yeah, of course, these are Celtic iconography. It wasn't really strong with the figurative work, but the emphasis really was on the, if you like, the mathematical world and the vegetable world. They're, they're famous for their interlacing um, designs. Uh, so, so I think different cultures have different charisms, as it were. The, the Celts would be the, the geometric abstracted designs uh, and the Romanesque. Um, this particular wet fold technique is just, a, as it were, a different language <laughs> used at Pentecost. Is it true to say that iconography properly um, cannot or should not be um, uh, three-dimensional in nature, that it, it needs to be two-dimensional? No, that's right. It, it is basically not a tradition of three-dimensional work in, in Orthodox liturgical art. I mean, interestingly, though, I did write a blog on this for the Orthodox Art Journal. I, I don't know if you know of this. It's um, started in Canada, but it's a fairly international thing now. Um, I've been commissioned by Lincoln Cathedral, a large Anglican cathedral in Britain, to do a three-dimensional work, The Mother of God and Child. So I designed this in a very iconographic way. Um, so it's 
a bit like Our Lady of the Sign, um, with with the Savior in in in, in um, a, uh, a sort of an egg shape, as it were. Um, so it, it is effectively based on iconography, and the way that it undergarments is inspired by this Romanist uh, tradition that I was describing to you. That's so three dimensional. Um, and it's gone down very well. I've made the marquette, haven't carved it yet. So it's all sort of done iconographically. And if we place it in the right way, it will be treated as an icon. Anyway, this led me to do a bit of research into the history of um, the Orthodox Church's response to um, statuary. Um, in fact, there are no canons that prohibited it at all. Um, so we have more just the tradition that we tended not to have it. And I think the reason is, is that a statue can be walked all around um, and because it's so three-dimensional, it's sort of this in danger of losing its iconographic property. An icon is flat normally, so we remind that it is only an image leading us through to the prototype. Um, and also because it's flat and it's on a wall, even if or even it's relief carving, um, you can only see it from one view. Um, you're always facing the face. It's always a relationship. Whereas a statue, you can go around the back and you're seeing the back. So the um, statue can become an object in its own right a bit more easily. Um, I don't think it was the case with the very early three-dimensional statuary, like in Romanesque times, um, because it was against the wall. It was part of a larger scheme of things, so you couldn't go around the back. It was you know, almost three-dimensional, but still up against a wall, like very deep relief work. Um, so I wouldn't say that um, statuary was sort of considered heresy in orthodoxy, but I think just for practical reasons. It doesn't work as well as other relief carving or, or painted work. Um, it, 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 it less easily leads us through itself to the prototype. If someone who's uh, listening to this podcast thinks that maybe they'd be interested in learning to do iconography or, or more properly becoming an iconographer, um, it, what, what would you say is um, the kind of the necessary minimum skill set, what would they need to even approach being able to be an iconographer? Mm. It's interesting. The, uh, I think it's um, a Russian canon which says um, if, if someone says they wish to do an icon, let them do some drawing. And if they show ability at drawing, then take them on to the next stage. So interestingly, the first thing is to, to test if they have an artistic gift, if they have a good eye. Um, it's like someone being in a choir. I mean, if they're just completely tone deaf, even if they're a saint, you wouldn't have them sing in the choir. <laughs> so likewise with iconography, you, know, you, you want the right heart attitude, but also a basic uh, natural ability is required. Um, there'd be some other service that they can offer the church if they haven't got that natural ability. Um, so that's the first thing. It's not always difficult to tell initially. Um, I've been quite surprised some people who have I've done quite clumsy drawing initially, have actually very quickly learned. So the clumsiness is just the fact that they've never done drawing before and it's taken a little time for the latent ability to come out. Um, but that generally you can tell pretty quickly, um, mainly uh, by the speed with which a student picks things up. You, a bit like a music teacher, I suppose. You know, if, if, if the student can, can pick up a note very quickly, then you think, oh, they've got a gift. But if you've got to go over and over and over a hundred times, you think this is going to be hard work. They're not an actual singer. Um, so, yes, the first of all, the latent ability. And then um, 
I would recommend just lots of um, monochrome painting. I was just using one color monochrome painting, doing uh, lots of studies of really great masterpieces, not because the icon tradition is a copyist one, but copying with understanding, I think, is one of the best ways to learn. Always asking why, you know, why they've done this. So in this way, theology, spirituality, and technique go hand in hand. Um, so this sort of questioning thing, uh, a user of an icon doesn't have to know why it's painted like that, but the maker of an icon needs to know why. And I think this is important for us in the West, really, that we've got to always discern um, what is unchanging and what is changing in the tradition um, so that um, we can gradually develop a, a genuine Western icon, icon tradition um, entirely faithful to the um, timeless principles of be it orthodox architecture or orthodox iconography or orthodox hymnography, whatever it is. And then the hard thing, ultimately, if you've established you've got a basic gift and you've got a blessing from your parish priest, you know, is, is to find out a way of learning. I've written a very extensive book, Techniques of Icon and Wall Painting, um, as a sort of practical help to people. Um, but I have said that this is no replacement for a good teacher. But I have seen that there's a lack of um, in-depth teaching, so I've put a lot of work into this book, going into the design stage and the technical side of making the board, etc. Um, so there are, there, are, there are a lot of aids out there. From your insider's viewpoint of actually being an iconographer and, and practicing the liturgical art here in the West, in Britain particularly, um, what, what do you see as the future of Western iconography? No, I think, I think where there's a desire for, for truly beautiful things, God will raise up the people to feed that desire. I'm very, com I'm very confident and optimistic about the future in the West of iconography. Um, I just think we need to be mature about it. Um, I think but what's happened is that because, in a sense, the icon tradition was lost in Russia and Greece, and, and not lost in the sense we didn't have icons, but speaking stylistically, the tradition got debased, if, if you like, in Russia because of the westernization that became a bit naturalistic, um, and in Greece because of the Turkish occupation and the lack of theological education, icons got a bit focused on the whole. Um, so having known that the tradition had been debased, and then it, it was revived in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century and in Greece, really, through photos contiglue. It's a bit of a fear, normally, with a revival. Oh, we mustn't sort of fall back, we mustn't innovate. So there's a tendency in the first generation, if you like, of a revival to copy too much. Um, it's a natural thing. You don't want to lose the tradition. You don't want to change things because you're afraid of changing backwards rather than forwards. So this sort of spirit of fear leading to copying tends to predominate in the first generation, but gradually you begin to discern um, what is timeless and what can be changed. So I think we're on the cusp of this second generation now where um, we're feeling more and more comfortable in the tradition. And with our church architecture, I feel this is very important as well. I think um, it's a lost opportunity if we, just, if we want to build a church in America or England, as it were, just import a uh, lock, stock and barrel, a, a, a Greek or a Russian designers plonkered in our country. I think this makes the wrong statement saying that you know, orthodoxy is primarily Greek or Russian. You know, we need to look at the surrounding architecture, like uh, in America you have wonderful 
uh, wooden colonial, well, not what's what's called wooden colonial architecture, but wooden wooden architecture. Um, it's a wonderful monastery in uh, Australia, um, and and the uh, abbot there, who's an iconographer of great merit, Father Lexi, um, he's designed a church that really relates to the to the wooden buildings of uh, the early wooden buildings of Australia. This is an Australian building, but it's also orthodox. It relates to you know Greek and Russian uh, architecture as well. So I think um, you know we need to be mature and growing up and be positive about the culture we live in, you know, and look for the good things in our culture. Um, yeah, so let's sort of look at all that's all that's good in our culture, even if it's only halfway there. Fulfill it and, and sort of bring it to maturity. It's perhaps it's a bit easier for us in Britain who've had you know two thousand years of Christianity. We have you know, the Anglo-Saxon, the Romanesque, the Celtic to draw on, um, but. Uh, it's always struck me that the great missionaries, St. Paul, for example, at the Areopagus, certainly he sees all the idols around, but when he starts to preach, he doesn't say, oh, you know, smash these idols and all your stuff is evil. The first thing he says, ah, I see that you are religious people. I see you have um, uh, an inscription to the unknown God. It's this unknown God I'm going to speak to you about. And then he quotes one of their philosophers, in whom we move and live and have our being. He's quoting a Greek philosopher there. So it's interesting that in his mission work, he starts with what God has already revealed to them. And I think our iconography ought to be the same. You know, we ought to be prophets in the sense of ones who hear the word of God already revealed to a culture and then build on that. Now, you've written a book um, out of your experience as an iconographer called Techniques of Icon and Wall Painting. Um, and I've seen this described as the most comprehensive book to date on the techniques of icon and wall painting. Is, is, this, is this the definitive work on how to do iconography? Well, I think uh, other people must judge if it's the definitive work, but I'm very aware of its uh, failings. But um, there had been a very successful, much, much smaller book by Ramos Bukui called um, The Technique of Icon Painting. And that, I understand, had been reprinted six times and translated into about six or seven languages. So this showed me that um, a book on the techniques of iconography is a very useful thing as a tool. Uh, so I set to, to make one. I didn't intend it to be as long as it ended up being, but fortunately my publisher said, just go forward, don't make it as big as you feel you need to. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't think you regretted it because it's selling quite well. Um, but yes, I really, as much as anything, wanted to show that this is a really serious business, that it's not just copying mindlessly, that you, we need to understand deeply the icon tradition and know the principles. So this is one reason why I made it the way I did, in a sense, to scare off amateurs, <laughs> I'm afraid, um, but also to, to equip those who are really serious about it and, and to sort of help put them on the right path or point in the right direction, um, you know, to show that it does require intelligence, it does require... Um, deeper and deeper understanding, um, and the book's only scratching the surface. Um, having written something, one's always sort of aware of its weaknesses and there are things that I'd like, like I'd like larger images of the stages of an icon painting, for example, they're only half a page or quarter of a page, so I'd like whole pages of the different stages, but we'll see, and an index, an index would be very useful. If you're interested in finding out more about the book or purchasing a copy, um, you can find it, of course, on Amazon or other uh, 
booksellers. You can also find um, a little more information about the book um, and some previews of some of the content in it if you're interested at um, Aiden Hart's website. And the website is AidenHartIcons.com. The first name is A I D A N. So again, it's AidenHartIcons.com. And if you, uh, if you look around in the navigation there, you'll be sure to find um, a link to the book. I think uh, currently it says New Icon Book. Uh, who knows what it will say in the future. So just look around. Um, I think you'll find it or, uh, or go look on Amazon. You'll find something there about it. And if a, a person is interested in the degree course that you offer in iconography, where would they find information about that? Yes, um, on my website again, if they go to... Um, I think it's the resources or the workshop page. Um, you can see uh, a description of the course there, and then there's a link to the Prince's School of Traditional Arts. Um, at the moment, Margot Stone is the administrator, and from through that link, you could download the application. Um, unfortunately, um, the application date for this coming three-year program come to an end so people have to wait another three years i'm afraid um, but all the information is there but it's the best thing if you're interested to put your name down so that um, when we do send out uh, applications and information about the next uh, diploma then uh, then, then uh, people will receive that information and thank you so much aiden for being here and uh, taking some time out of your schedule to talk to me and to whoever ends up listening to this podcast about the very special art of iconography and giving us a little insider's look and uh, and hopefully maybe encouraging some people who have some artistic talent and um, and feel that this is uh, a, a way in which they can um, contribute to the life of the church um, and maybe uh, maybe uh, connect with you in your degree program over there. So thank you again for taking time to be here. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. It's a pleasure. It's been a real joy to talk with you, Mark. And I always found in these these interviews that I, I, I learn a lot through the questions asked. <laughs> well, that's the end of the conversation with British iconographer Aidan Hart. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, if you have um, enjoyed this podcast uh, or this particular episode, um, there's a couple of ways that you can participate and help to share the word about the, the conversations that we have going on here to your Orthodox friends and family and to your non-Orthodox friends and family who might be interested in Orthodoxy and maybe just want to understand a little bit more. I um, want to hear some people who know Orthodoxy talk about it. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the people that I, that I have these wonderful conversations with. Um, tell your, your friends and family about uh, the website conversationsonorthodoxy.com. There's information and links there that will help them to subscribe to the podcast uh, via iTunes or their own podcasting uh, software, uh, whatever that might be. And uh, we've also just started up a Facebook page um, so that uh, we can get a little more two-way communication between, um, between us and you. Um, sometimes it feels like you're kind of throwing your podcast out into the void. You have no idea how it's being received. And so this gives you a little bit of a chance to uh, provide a voice back to tell us what we're doing good, what we're doing bad, and how we can improve. And, uh, and hopefully um, that will be beneficial to both of us. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, um, when those episodes come out uh, on, on 
Facebook. Um, uh, share them on your timeline. Let other people know about them, and uh, that'll help us to spread the word too. Um, the uh, if you go to Facebook, just search for Conversations on Orthodoxy, and uh, it should pop right up there. Um, and then you can just like it and share things as they come along. Uh, and then uh, we we will probably be doing some. Uh, giveaways and, and various things along the way to help us build audience. So uh, it'd be a good idea to go ahead and like it now so that you can at least see when those uh, those notifications come up for the giveaways and then you don't get left out. Um, as always, uh, thank you for uh, for listening and I hope that you uh, will go ahead and subscribe to the podcast because we have um, some good episodes that will be coming up. So I'm really excited about um, some of the things that are already um, recorded some of the interviews that are recorded and also some that uh, will be being recorded um, we're going to have some some really interesting people um, that have already committed to doing interviews um, and i think you will enjoy them immensely so subscribe now uh, again you can you can subscribe via conversations on orthodoxy.com and uh, and then you'll be ready and you'll catch those episodes as soon as they come out the music on this episode was found, as always, on freemusicarchive.org. The songs that you heard were from Yoko Komatsu, ZMI, The Kyoto Connection, Pottington Bear, and BPOD. Um, You can find tracks from those artists, as well as many others that you can use uh, in your own projects by going to freemusicarchive.org.